This morning, I invite you to draw your sword and turn to Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 to 42. Once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Exodus chapter 12, allow me to begin reading at verse 29. Exodus chapter 12, 29 to 42. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night. There was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. For otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people And they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramiz to Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, as well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. When the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, and on this night all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. The story I just read for you is the biblical account of the tenth and final plague that God sent upon Egypt. Last time we bumped into Moses, he was on his way to Pharaoh to declare, let God's people go. The exchange between Moses and Pharaoh is extremely intense. It's recorded for us in Exodus chapter 7 through 12. The pattern is pretty predictable. Moses says to Pharaoh, let God's people go. Pharaoh says no. God sends a plague. The plague is so severe that Pharaoh calls for Moses and promises that if God will relent, I will let God's people go. And God would remove the plague, and then Pharaoh would remove his promise. And that pattern repeated itself over and over and over again. As you read throughout all ten plagues, there are at least three observations that you can make about God. The first one is this, that God's sovereignty is unmistakable. God's sovereignty is unmistakable. Sovereignty means that God is not only in control, but he has everything under control. Everything is under the control of God. So it was the Lord who 
turn the water of the Nile River into blood. This is pretty dramatic. After all, the Nile was believed to be the sustenance and source of life for all of Egypt. In fact, the Egyptians even deified the Nile River. Following that, God sent frogs. I'm talking about little kermits, little frogs all over the place. And they were everywhere. They were in the palace. They were in the pasture. They were in the workplace. They were in the oven. They were in the toilet. They were in the bed. Everywhere you look, there were frogs all over the place. And following that, God sent gnats. Those little pesky little things. Then God sent flies. And the gnats and the flies, they were so dense, they were so thick, that it's described as a thick blanket of wool that covered the ground. Flies everywhere, in your eyes, around your head, every place you look, all over the place. What a nuisance. And following that, there was the death of livestock. The Egyptian economy was an agrarian economy, so the death of livestock was a hit against the economy. Following that, there was an epidemic that broke out, boils that went from the top of people's head to the bottom of their feet. And nobody could get relief from these boils. They itched, they burned, they scratched, and nobody could get it. They would go to all their doctors, but there were no creams, there were no ointments, there was no medication that could alleviate this pain. And following that, there was a hailstorm. A hailstorm destroyed much of the vegetation. Following that hailstorm, there came a, a, a plague of locusts. Whatever the hailstorm did not destroy, then the locusts would come and they ate up the rest of the vegetation. You talk about a massive hit against the economy. Oh, and then there was the plague of darkness. For three days, there was no light. Now, once, once again, the Egyptians, they deified the sun in the sky. They, they worshiped that sun. And for three days, that sun refused to shine. What the God of Israel was saying is that there is no God besides me. I'm in control of all things. Got everything under control. But then the last plague, it was the most severe. It was death of the firstborn. This was the death of the firstborn of Pharaoh as well as the prisoner. Not just men, but also livestock as well. And all the while, God demonstrates that his sovereignty is unmistakable. He's the one calling the shots. He's the one pulling the strings. He's the one saying what needs to happen. It is God who is in control of history. After all, it is his story. But I can well imagine that the Egyptian people, they came up with other explanations. Probably when you turned on the Egyptian version of CNN, MSNBC, and even beloved Fox News, I think probably you had the talking heads that were there and they said, strange weather we're having, don't you think? They probably blamed it on global warming. Climate change. That's probably what's going on here. And then that epidemic that broke out. No doctor saw this one coming, but this was devastating. And probably if you listen long enough, they probably even blamed the Russians for what was going on in Egypt. They had human explanation. That's my point. For all of these plagues, they would have had human explanations but the right of the Exodus account gives us God's perspective. And God's sovereignty is unmistakable. He's in charge of it all. He's calling the shots. What's true of God so many years ago is also true of God today. 
He's still calling the shots. He's still in charge of the weather forecast. He's still in charge of all the national crisis and events. He's still in charge. Got everything under control. Why? Because God's sovereignty is unmistakable. You may not recognize it. You may not agree with it, but I'm here to tell you it's legit. God's sovereignty is unmistakable. That's the first observation. Second one is this, that as you read through the plagues, it becomes abundantly clear that the reason or purpose for liberation is worship. On five occasions, Moses quotes God as saying, let my people go so they may go and worship me. You could read this in Exodus chapter 7, verse 16, chapter 8, verse 20, chapter 9, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 13, chapter 10, verse 3. On five different occasions, the Lord says, let my people go so that they can worship me. The purpose of liberation has always been worship. I told you before that the greatest act of deliverance in the Old Testament is the Exodus account. Where God, with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, he rescued the Israelites from Egyptian captivity. And oh, what a glorious liberation it was. And the purpose of that liberation was so that God's people could worship the God of the people. But make no mistake about it, the greatest act of deliverance, the greatest act of liberation in all of human history took place 2,000 years ago. When Jesus, the God-man, came and he set us free, not from an Egyptian taskmaster, but the shackles of our own sinfulness, and Jesus set us free. In fact, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, anyone who sins is a slave to sin, and a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son is a son forever. Therefore, if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. What Jesus is saying is, I have come to set you free from all shackle and shame. I have come to set you free from all sin and bondage. I have come to set you free so you're free from your past and free from your skeletons and free from all of your burdens you are also free to worship and to serve and to love and to forgive and ultimately you and I are free and liberated so that we can worship the Lord Almighty both now and forevermore the reason Jesus has set us free is so that we may worship him if you peer into the page of the last book of the Bible the book of Revelation what do you see God's people doing Thousands upon thousands, ten thousands upon ten thousands, they are gathered around the throne and what are they declaring? Worthy is the Lamb, for He has set us free. Worthy of worship. Now this is just a little aside, but I, I think it's a pretty good nugget, so I'm going to go ahead and tell you. One of the greatest gifts that God has given His people is the corporate worship. For us to be able to come and to worship the Lord and I know I've, I've talked to graduates before, I've talked to other adults before, and they've said to me, but you know, I don't have to go to church in order to be saved. And that's true. You don't have to go to church in order to be saved. But my question is, why in the world would anybody who's saved not want to go to church? Because this is one of the greatest gifts that God has given his people. The opportunity for us to get together in corporate worship because we've been liberated to worship. We've been set free to worship the Lord, both corporately and individually, domestically, internationally. We can worship the Lord anytime, place. But oh, what a joy and blessing that God has given his people. We can come together on God's day and worship him in all spirit and truth. So as you read the stories of the plagues, it becomes abundantly clear that the purpose of liberation is worship. There's a third observation. The third one is this, that God always makes provisions for his people. 
The descendants of Jacob, they nestled and settled in the northeastern region of Egypt in the land called Goshen. And on at least four to five occasions in this, in this account in Exodus, we are told that, that God made provisions for the people living in Goshen. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean that when the death of livestock came, not one cow that belonged to an Israelite in, Egypt, in, in Goshen died. When there were all the flies, Scripture says not one fly was found in Goshen. When there was a hailstorm, not one drop of hail was found in Goshen. And uh, when there was that darkness, only in the land of Goshen was there light. Light in the midst of darkness. God always provides and makes provisions for his people. But the greatest provision he makes in this tenth and final plague. He told them, there will be death of the firstborn. So allow me to make provisions for my people. Take a lamb without spot, blemish, or defect. About a year old. Kill it. Drain its blood from its body. Put that blood in a bowl. Take a hyssop plant, go outside the front door of your establishment, and with a hyssop plant, anoint the door frames with the blood of the lamb. Then come back in and roast the lamb. Prepare it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. Don't put yeast in there because we got to have some fast food tonight. We don't have time to leisurely eat this meal. In fact, uh, the Lord said to the Israelites, I want you to wear your cloak and tuck it into your belt. I want you to be ready to run. Because about midnight, the death angel is going to pass through all of Egypt, including the land of Goshen. The death angel will pass through. And any house that does not have the blood of the lamb on its doorpost the death of the firstborn child will result. But any house that does have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, the death angel will pass over that house. That house and all of its inhabitants will be protected by the blood of the perfect lamb. And sure enough, about midnight, on that infamous night, it was a death angel that came through and every house that had the blood of the lamb on it that house was passed over. And about midnight, there was loud wailing. There was crying from Pharaoh in his house to the prisoner in the dungeon. There was animals that were calling out even in the pasture because death was, was creeping in and death was all over the place. And it was Pharaoh who called for Moses and Aaron and said, up, leave, get out of here, go, worship your God and also bless me because if you don't get out of here, all of Egypt is gonna die. God had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the Israelites. So the Israelites walked up and said, will you give me those gold earrings? Sure, take them, leave. What about that silver charm? I don't need it, take it. What about the clothes that you got? I'll take those too. Get out of here because if you don't leave, all of us are gonna die. So they plundered the Egyptians. Scripture says that even though the Israelites had been enslaved for 430 years to the very day, God made sure every division of the Israelites were set free, liberated, free. 600,000 men left that night. It doesn't include women and children, 
So most uh, scholars think that on this night, some two million Israelites left. Two million people, that's a lot. With all the gold and the silver of Egypt, the livestock as well. There were even some Egyptians that went because they said, listen, if your God can do all of this, I'm with you. They left in excess of two million. How do you think they felt? I'll tell you how they felt. Amazed, excited. They walked through the streets where once they were ridiculed. They walked through the, through the fields where once they used to have to bake bricks. They walked through the boundary of Egypt where they've been held captive for 430 years. How do you think they felt? They were alive, amazed, excited. And in fact, Moses said, we're going to remember this night and we will never forget this night because God has set us free. And so we will never forget. So every year we're going to have Passover and we'll remember how the death angel passed over the houses of our ancestors. And every year they had Passover. Now in the years to come, they took their time in the meal. They slowed down. They laid back. They didn't have to get anywhere. So they told the story in all of its details. They ate the meat and and the roasted Lamb, they, they ate the bitter herbs. They enjoyed the unleavened bread. They take their time. But I do wonder, how long did it take this to get old hat? How long did it take for the Israelites to say, listen, we've been doing this for years. We know the story. We know how it goes. I wonder how long before time had tarnished their amazement and stifled their excitement. You know, time has a way of doing that, you know. You can do something for so long that sometimes time can just tarnish amazement. It can stifle excitement. You remember uh, Christmas when you were a child? How excited you were. You woke up early before anybody else. You ran downstairs and you saw the, the, the glittering lights and the, and the beautiful packages. But then as the years went on, what did you do? You slept a little bit later, especially when you became a teenager. You slept a lot later. You thought to yourself, listen, there are going to be gifts down there. We know it. It happens every year. It's not that big of a deal. Friends, what happened? Time tarnished amazement, stifled excitement. You remember when you, when you bought that uh, fancy Candy apple red hot rod. You were, you know, I don't know, 16, 18, 21, 25, and you bought that car. It was a great car. Boy, it could go fast. And you loved that car. There were times that you would not even take it out when it rained. You don't want one drop of rain to fall on that car. If you ever had to go to Walmart, you always parked in the very back of the parking lot because you didn't want anybody to bump into that car. But now you've had it for some time. It's not a new car anymore. It's kind of an old car. It's got some dings and dents. Listen, it doesn't matter if a thunderstorm is coming. You're going to get in that car and drive. And you got to go to Walmart? Oh, who cares where you park? You'll park at the very front just because you want to get in and out as quickly as possible. What happened? Time. Time has a way of tarnishing amazement and stifling excitement. Hey, ladies. You remember that first time you saw your man? <laughs> your heart goes pitter-patter. Guys, y'all remember the first time you saw your fine honey? <laughs> remember that? Your heart was skipping a beat. And now, 
Years have passed, guys. <laughs> and men, your heart still skips a beat, but it's not because of romance. It's because you picked up 50 pounds. That's cholesterol that's built up on the, on the lining walls of your arteries. What happened? Time. You know, time has a way of tarnishing amazement, stifling excitement. By the time Jesus steps onto the page of the New Testament, the Israelites have been observing Passover for some 1,500 years. By the time Jesus and the boys get there, I'm sure some of the disciples thought to himself, good night, we've been doing this forever. I mean, forever we've been doing this. And for the first couple of times that even Jesus led the Passover meal, he did it the same way their forefathers had done it, said the same story. They ate the meal in the same way. Hmm. But, but the last time he led Passover, he identified himself as that Passover lamb. He identified himself as that lamb without blemish or spot or defect. Jesus was insinuating that if his blood was over the corners of your heart, then the death angel of condemnation would pass over you. That if the blood of the lamb was over your life, your heart, then you were spared from condemnation. But if you did not have the blood of the lamb, it wouldn't just be the death of the firstborn. It'd be your eternal separation from God. Jesus identified his broken body as the bread. He identified his precious blood as the cup of the new covenant. <laughs> I promise you that when the church began to remember what Jesus had said after the bold resurrection of Christ on that first Easter Sunday. They said, hey, we got to observe this Passover thing again. In fact, Jesus, uh, we, we call the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, Eucharist, because Thanksgiving for what God has done. So when we observe this thing, oh boy, we're going to remember who Jesus is and what he's done. We'll never forget. Remember the first time you ever had the Lord's Supper? Do you? You remember? Okay, four of us do. That's great. That's great. I remember I was about seven years old. It was exciting. I remember. It was in the fellowship hall of the church. We, we, each table had a loaf of unleavened bread. We broke it and ate it. The pastor told us to. I remember looking at a little shot glass of Welch's grape juice. Oh, but I knew what that represented. I represented the precious blood of Christ that covered over my sins. I remember the first time I took it. Do you? Do you remember that first time? Sometimes we've been in church so long, almost too long, we come in and we see the table and we're like, oh yeah, we're going to recognize some graduates today. We're going to have the Lord's Supper. Okay, we do this stuff all the time. But if you're not careful, time can tarnish your amazement can stifle your excitement. Today, I, I want you to come to this table and I want you to come amazed and excited. Amazed and excited that he who knew no sin became your sin. Amazed and excited that if we confess 
with our lips, Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved, amazed and excited. That all we have to do is, is just confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, amazed and excited. That by his stripes, we have been made healed. This morning, I want you to come, believer in Christ. I want you to come, Christian. I want you to come to this table, but I only want you to come amazed and excited. If you're not amazed and excited, don't come. The only people coming today are those who are amazed and excited. Don't let time tarnish. Don't let time stifle. Don't let anything rob you of the joy that God has given in your heart. Because I don't know about you, but I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And I wonder how he can love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. But oh, how marvelous and oh, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful is his amazing love for me. And if that's true for me, could also be true for you. So this morning, if you are a Christian, I want you to come. The deacons will come, we'll pass out the bread, we'll pass out the cup. You take it, beloved, but only take it if you're amazed and excited. As if today you've been reminded for the first time ever that our God is unmistakably sovereign. And that the reason God has set us free and liberated us is to worship him. And that ours is a God who always makes provisions for his people so that we may be with him both now and forevermore. So church, you come amazed and excited.